Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2019 Desert Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Michael McFall, a Peter and Helen Bing Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is From Cold War to Hot Peace, an American Ambassador in Putin's Russia. And it was recorded on March 25th, 2019. I want to say right away, I hate speaking at this venue. It is hard to compete with paradise behind you. Uh, um, and, and so I'm going to try to be punchy and brief so we can get to your questions. This is a fantastic place, and it's good to be back. And thank you for the honor of allowing me to, to talk about my latest book. So usually when I lecture about this topic, uh, this book, I have to explain to my students at Stanford what the Cold War was. I'm looking at this room, I'm seeing the gray hair, I'm guessing I don't have to remind you what the Cold War was in this audience. But I do want you to remember it for a moment. And I want you to remember how awful it was, because I think a lot of people have forgotten that. Uh, it was certainly scary for me, growing up as a kid in Montana, uh, in the late 70s and early 80s, I graduated in 1981. Uh, I became interested in the Soviet Union actually through debate class and debate competition. Uh, my partner was a guy named Steve Daines, who's now the senator from Montana. We were a pretty good debate team. Um, and at that time, remember, it felt like there was an ideological struggle in the world. There was a nuclear arms race, and it, it was a very dangerous time. That's the reason when I showed up as a freshman, a 17-year-old kid from Montana at Stanford University, I decided, I enrolled in two classes that changed my life, first year Russian and poli-sci 35, how nations deal with each other, because I was worried about how we were going to prevail over the Soviets. Sophomore year, you know, most kids at Stanford, they go to Florence or Oxford or Paris for their trips abroad. I'd never been abroad. Uh, but, but I took my first trip abroad to Russia, uh, the Soviet Union to be exact, in the summer of 1983, uh, animated by this idea that the Cold War was something that all uh, you know, patriotic people had to engage in and try to prevail in. By the way, imagine that phone call from my mother <laughs> that sophomore year when I told her I was going to the evil empire, as Ronald Reagan called it that year. She thought that California was a communist country, by the way, and did not want me to go to California. So imagine two years later, her son becomes a communist. Uh, I didn't become a communist despite the long hair, and bless her soul, she's been a supporter of mine ever since. Now I want you to remember one other event before I get to the heart of my talk. The end of the Cold War. It was a fantastic moment in history. Uh, in many ways, the end of the 20th century. Because of these two guys, uh, Gorbachev on the left, Ronald Reagan on the right, they had something to do with it to end that Cold War struggle. These hundreds of thousands of people also had something to do with it. They frequently get forgotten in their history books. And if you look really hard, you can see me. I'm there. I'm going to come back to that later. But I just think it's important before we get on to our current moment to remember that during this period, 
We thought it was the end of history, the end of the struggle between communism and capitalism. It seemed like the Russians wanted to join the West. They wanted to create markets and democratic institutions. And for a while, we thought they were going to be at least our partners, and some might have dreamed about them even being our allies. It was a pretty, for me, the end of the Cold War was a glorious moment. And I want you to remember that before I pivot to this next slide. Because today, nobody thinks about it that way. Dmitry Medvedev, speaking a couple years ago, he's the Prime Minister of Russia, he compared our current situation to 1962. That, of course, is the year of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Our president, of course, on Twitter, said it's worse than the Cold War. And whether that's right or wrong, we can debate it. In fact, let's leave this for questions. I, I don't want to spend too much time on this. But I'm, my guess is we'll all agree that it, the confrontation in Russian-American relations today is much worse than it was 30 years ago when Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev ended the Cold War. Just to take a couple of comparisons here, right? So there's a kind of good news, bad news story here. This would make an excellent final exam question in my class, by the way. Compare and contrast. Cold War with the hot peace. So, some good news. The qualitative nuclear arms race that haunted us during the Cold War is over. We're moving in the right direction. Fewer and fewer nuclear weapons in the world. That's a good thing. The bad news is that the qualitative race on both the nuclear side, on the offensive side, and the defensive side is growing. Putin just announced a few months ago, by the way, uh, some new weapons that aren't controlled by arms control treaties and that are designed to attack citizens on the coast of the United States of America. In other words, us, okay? Designed to attack citizens, to drown them. Literally, this thing called the Poseidon is designed to drown us. That's something new. We didn't have that during the Cold War. Second, good news. The ideological struggle between capitalism and communism is over. They're still fighting about it over up in Berkeley, of course. Uh, but, but we're not fighting about it at Stanford anymore, by the way. It's over, and that is great news. We won that battle. We won that ideological uh, struggle during the Cold War. The bad news is that Putin, for about a decade now, has been fighting a new ideological struggle, at least defined by him. It's anti-West, it's anti-multilateral institutions, it's nativist, it's nationalist, and in his definition, not mine, conservative Christian values against the decadent European West and decadent America. Most of you probably haven't even noticed. For years and years, he was devoting lots of resources into this fight, building up his television stations, uh, courting uh, various leaders in Europe, uh, supporting non-governmental organizations that are sympathetic to Putinism. But today, he started to have some successes. In Hungary, Viktor Orban. In Italy, Matteo Salvini. And even in our country, there are people now that gravitate towards these ideas of Putinism. And this fight is not between states, as you just noticed. It's within states. So are we better off, worse off? You tell me. Last one in the compare and contrast, the means by which we fight the hot peace compared to the Cold War. This is mostly a good news story. The Cold War, after all, was not a Cold War. It was a hot war. Millions of people died, including tens of thousands of Americans. Don't ever forget that. It was a horrible war, not just about ideas, but about people died. Thankfully, we're not fighting proxy wars against the Russians all over the world. But there's some bad news in our current era. Some new things 
that we thought we had gotten rid of. Annexation. We fought World War II to stop annexation in Europe. Now it's back. 2014, Putin annexed Crimea, part of Ukraine. Sanctions. In all of our Cold War history, we never had as many Russians on our sanctions list as we do today. More, actually more than in the entire history of U.S.-Soviet or U.S.-Russian relations. We have more today than all of the 200 years combined. And by the way, the Russians also have more Americans on their sanctions list than any time in U.S.-Soviet or U.S.-Russian history. I know because I'm on that list. I can't go to Russia today. Um, and then finally, yes, the Russians have, the Soviets from time to time, tried to influence the course of, of American thinking. But never have we had an intervention like we did in 2016, a multi-pronged intervention to try to shape the course of our election to violating American sovereignty for that kind of domestic intervention. That is something new. So good news, bad news, you know, whether we're better off or worse off, I think we're mostly better off. I think we would all agree we're not where we thought we were going to be 30 years ago. So for the next 20 minutes, I just want to explain what happened. Just remember these two photos. You don't have to remember anything else I say today. What happened between the photo on the left and the photo on the right? That's what I want to explain. I'm going to walk you through three different explanations for what happened there. All right, the first one is what you would learn in most international relations courses in America, including at Stanford. Um, the basic argument is that what we're seeing today is just the rise of a once weak power. Russia. This is a map of European history where it's, gonna, it's rolling through a thousand years. Don't worry, we're not going to watch the whole map. But what are you seeing here? You're seeing some countries become more powerful, some of their neighbors become weaker, and as a result, the borders are changing. Whether it's good or bad, that's a different argument. We could talk about that. It's just the way it is, right? This is the nature of the international system. The balance of power between the great powers drives the drama in international relations. By the way, it takes a long time before Crimea becomes part of Russia in this map, but we're not going to wait that long. So by this explanation, Soviet Union collapsed. Russia was weak. Russia's now back. Russia has a lot of capacity, so there's nothing new here. Russia's just behaving like a great power again. Let's just get used to it. And I want to be clear, part of this explanation is right. Power matters in the international system. Um, I'm surveying here. Is anybody from Lithuania? That's usually a safe one. Nobody, no Lithuanians. How about Moldova? That's an even better one, because nobody knows where Moldova is. I, and, and I love Moldova. That came out wrong. I, I've been to Moldova. It's a great country. But you're not interested in a talk about American-Moldovan relations, because Moldova doesn't have the power to annex its neighbors. It doesn't have the power to support dictators in the Middle East. It doesn't have the power to intervene in our elections, right? We're interested in Russia in part because Russia has the power to do all those things. So power matters. But I have two buts, two qualifications. One, I can think of some countries that become more powerful in the international system that don't attack their neighbors and don't threaten the United States. 
Japan, Germany after World War II are two obvious examples. Even Poland, Poland's a lot more powerful today than 30 years ago. I'm not worried about them annexing their territory or their neighbors. And even China, I'm not convinced that we are destined for war with China. Let's come back to that during questions. So if you can think of some examples, there have to be something added to the story to explain the story, the full story. But the second one is the one I wanted to want to focus on. Russia's had a lot of power for a while. Why was it only in 2014 that Putin decided to invade uh, Ukraine? And I think that was really the pivot in terms of Russia's confrontation with Europe and confrontation with the United States. Here's the, the real paradox. When I showed up in Moscow as ambassador in January 2012, Putin's number one foreign policy objective is I'm sure something nobody here has ever heard of, but it was at the top of his list. It was to create something called the Eurasia Economic Union, gather up the former states of the Soviet Union as a counterweight to the European Union. That was what he was laser-like focused on. We wrote lots of cables. Nobody wrote, read them about this being really important to him. Uh, but that's what he was focused on when I showed up in Moscow in 2012. By the time I got there, he had Belarus and Kazakhstan already in. He was focused on getting Ukraine to join the Eurasian Economic Union. Ukraine was really the key to making this thing hum. Uh, and here's why, and I promise, last question. I, I asked if you, this one's easier than, are you from Moldova? Uh, listen to all parts of the question. Tell me something that you've purchased that had on the back of it, made in Russia, but you purchased it in the United States of America. Nobody, nothing. Nothing, caviar? What did you buy, sir? Zero, oh, that's a zero, okay. All right, well, that's the correct answer. Usually I get some exotic, crazy uh, things from time to time. Uh, but most Americans, so you're like most Americans, uh, don't buy things made in Russia because Russia doesn't make anything that people wanna buy, right? in America or most of Europe. Back in 2012 though, there were 45 million, 42 depending on how you count, consumers that bought a lot of made in Russia goods, Ukrainians. And so getting Ukraine into this Eurasian Economic Union was the key for Russia's economy to succeed. And yet, two years later, he invades Ukraine, I think guaranteeing forever that they're never gonna join his stupid Eurasian Economic Union, right? So something more proximate must have happened to drive Putin in this opposite direction from what was his previous top foreign policy objective. All right, next explanation. It's all our fault. This also is popular in Berkeley, by the way, uh, but it's also popular in Moscow. And here's the basic story. This is Putin's story about us. Russia was weak and we took advantage of them. We lectured them about private property and democracy in the 90s. Then we expanded NATO because they couldn't do anything about it. We bombed Serbia. We invaded Iraq. We supported color revolutions in Georgia in 2003 and Ukraine in 2004. And finally, Putin just said, enough is enough. It's time for us to push back on American imperialism. That's his argument. It's our fault. And like the first argument, I want to be clear. All of these events happened. I write about all of them in my book, available on Amazon. Uh, and all of them exacerbated tensions in US-Russian relations. That's all true. Uh, by the way, the Russians did some things that also exacerbated tensions, but let's leave them out for now. And yet, 
after this period of, of confrontation on, on these kind of issues, we had a period of cooperation, the time that I was working at the White House. It was a pretty simple idea. We came in, and the idea was we're not going to cooperate with Russia on everything. But in narrow places, we had a hypothesis that our interests and their interests were going to overlap. And so let's focus on those sets of issues to get win-win outcomes. Good for America, good for Russia. And I won't belabor it, uh, but we got some pretty big things done. 2010, uh, these two presidents, Medvedev and Obama, signed the New START Treaty, reducing by 30% the number of nuclear weapons in the world. That's a good outcome, as far as I'm concerned, for American national security interests. And I presume Medvedev wouldn't have signed it had it not been deemed in his eyes to be good for Russia's national interests as well. And oh, by the way, I know it's pretty rare these days, but we also got 72 votes in the US Senate to ratify that treaty. Second, you probably haven't heard of it, but it was a project I worked on, inherited from the Bush administration, called NDN, Northern Distribution Network. Uh, this got started right at the end of the Bush administration. It was a really smart thing. Um, and basically, to build a network of trains, planes, automobiles, airplanes, to go through the north, through Russia and Central uh, Asia, into Afghanistan, to supply our soldiers there to reduce our dependence on Pakistan. At the time when I showed up at the National Security Council, 95% of our supplies went through Pakistan. And we wanted to build this northern route. But to do it, you had to have the Russians to cooperate. And over the course of time, we convinced them that it was in their interest to fight the Taliban and Al-Qaeda with us. It was not in their interest to fight against us. That changed later. We'll come back to that. Um, and by 2012, over 50% of our supplies to our soldiers in Afghanistan came through the north and not through the south. And that proved to be really critical in 2011 when we invaded Pakistani sovereignty, we violated their sovereignty, and we went into their country and killed Osama bin Laden. We couldn't have done that without NDN. Third, we put in place the most comprehensive set of sanctions against Iran ever, multilateral sanctions. That was a predicate for the Iran nuclear deal. I still think that was a good deal. I think it was a mistake to pull out of it. And then fourth, I want to remind you, maybe I don't need to remind this crowd, but I do need to remind my students about what I call non-events. You know, nobody ever writes a book about non-events, right? Um, and yet, they're critical, things that almost happen, and yet we dodge and we didn't make them happen. Later in this story, we're going to have a fight over a color revolution in Ukraine that causes tension between the United States and Russia. But back in 2010, there was another color revolution. You don't remember it. But 100 people died. The president got overthrown. 300,000 people living in Kyrgyzstan fled. And it felt like it was going to be a major uh, ethnic genocidal war within Kyrgyzstan and between Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan. And you may say, well, why do I care about Kyrgyzstan, right? Well, back in 2010, our most important air base for fighting the war in Afghanistan was in Kyrgyzstan, the Manas Air Base. That's why we cared back then. But those headlines really never made it to page one news in America because it got reduced. We didn't have an explosion in US-Russian relations because back then, we both thought it was in our interest to avoid that kind of confrontation.
All right, I'll go quicker over some of these. Uh, every box here represents a thousand hours of my life. Uh, but I just want to remind you that this period of cooperation, the economic story was also moving in the right direction. Investment was up by 40%. Trade was up by 40%. Way more American business people were showing up in Moscow than ever before. We had the positive trajectory on the economic story as well. And among our people, at the peak of this cooperation, most Russians had a positive view of the United States, and most Americans had a positive view of Russia. That was just several years ago. So in my view, you can't go back to these historic events, NATO expansion, the Iraq War, or the Orange Revolution, and say, well, these are the causes of our current confrontation, when after all of these things, by the way, all three of those things happened in the Bush administration. After all of these things, there was a period of cooperation afterwards. Well, you can make that argument, but you're going to get a C minus in my class. That's a really bad causal argument. It suggests that something else, not these things from the past, but something closer to our recent events was the real trigger for bad uh, dynamics in U.S.-Russia relations. And that's what I want to end on. Russian domestic politics. I think this was the real driver. And here, for the purposes of time, I just want to focus on two different factors in Russian domestic politics. I want to keep underscoring it's about Russia, not about us. All right, first thing, well, these are the two factors. Putin comes back as president, and there are demonstrations against him in 2011 and 2012. Let me walk through those, and then I want to take your questions. All right. September 24th, 2011, Putin decides he's going to come back. He was prime minister before, Medvedev was president. Here you can see him very loudly announcing at his party congress, I'm going to run for president in the spring of 2012. And I want to be clear, at the time, I was still working at the National Security Council, the conventional wisdom within the intelligence community, and I don't know about academia, but uh, most certainly among people I was talking to who claimed to be experts about Russia, was saying, well, this is no big deal. Putin's been the leader this whole time anyway. Medvedev's just this puppet. He doesn't really matter. There is going to be continuity in uh, Russian policy. I personally had a different view. I've known Putin for a long time. I met him in the spring of 1991. I wouldn't say we're Facebook friends. Uh, although, given what goes on on Facebook these days, maybe we are friends, right? Maybe that Natasha that's trolling me every night, that's actually Vladimir Putin. Uh, but because I had this long-standing relationship with him, I, I was skeptical. I thought we were in for trouble. And over the next couple of years, I think we saw up close and personal that Putin actually had quite a different worldview than President Medvedev. I mentioned the New START Treaty, win-win for Russia and the United States. In Putin's view, there are no win-win outcomes. Everything is zero-sum. If it is plus two for Russia, it is minus two for the United States and vice versa. That's the framework within which he sees international relations. Second, Putin was not trained at Stanford. He didn't take poli-sci 35 with me. He was trained in the KGB. And in the KGB, during the Soviet era, especially when he joined, by the way, it's the, it's the stagnation period of the Soviet era. The best and the brightest are not joining the K KGB then. It's only the most fiercest loyalists to the Soviet Union. That's when Vladimir Putin joins. And with that framework, 
We, on a good day, are a competitor, and on most days, we're the enemy. That comes from the Soviet, that comes from that Cold War period. Remember, I celebrated the end of the Cold War. I celebrated the end of the Soviet empire. One of the greatest days of my life when that happened. For him, he explained it as the most tragic event of the 20th century. Think about that. 20th century was pretty tragic. That's the differences, the way he sees the world versus the way I do and many others in the West. But this third one was, was the, the real, I think, moment of tension in U.S.-Russian relations. Putin has a theory about American foreign policy. He believes that we use overt and covert power to overthrow regimes that we don't like. And guess what? From time to time over the last 70 years, we've done that. There's some evidence to support that hypothesis. And we sat down to debate this with him, actually, in July 2009. He's still prime minister there. We're out, his, out at his house having breakfast. Three different kinds of caviar, by the way. Two, I think, were illegal. Uh, uh, but it was a long breakfast. Um, he was very proud that we had three different kinds. Um, and Putin, just so you know, when he comes to meetings, he comes very prepared. He has an agenda. Uh, he had some very specific things that he wanted to get off his chest. He spoke for over an hour before Obama said a word. Obama's way more patient guy than I am. Uh, and it was all about the evil Bush administration. Never, by the way, President Bush. He's got a soft, he really likes President Bush. He made clear he was talking about the administration, the deep state, as we now call it. That's his view. It's the CIA, it's the Pentagon, Dick Cheney, all of these people. The good, the good president was trying to do the right thing. All these other evil people were trying to do these evil things. And he walked through them in sequence. And then he got to Iraq, and he said, you guys made a giant mistake in invading Iraq. Uh, you screwed up Iraq, you screwed up the Middle East, you obviously don't understand how these regimes work. He kind of gave us his lecture about Arab culture and Arab history, Muslim culture. Uh, and Obama agreed with him. He said, you're right, I think it was a mistake. We're not going to do regime change like that uh, anymore. We're done with that. And I'm not sure Putin was convinced. He kind of looked at him like maybe he's going to be different, uh, maybe not. Remember, the president, president, uh, Prime Minister Putin had never heard an American say that before, right? He'd been dealing with President Bush since the war. Uh, and so we walked out to the cars. I could say well, maybe this guy is going to be different. But then fast forward 18 months later, you had regime change in the Middle East. First in Egypt, then Libya then Syria. In fact, I want to come back to Libya. This is the Arab Spring, at least that was how it was referred back in 2011. I want to underscore the United States, to the best of my knowledge, had nothing to do with sparking these uprisings against these regimes, uh, uh, unless there's some classified information that I don't know about. We then had to respond to them, just like every other country in the world, but we were not sparking revolution against our allies. I mean, Egypt was our ally after all. Um, but we thought we had to respond, and in particular, if you'll remember in Libya, uh, uh, in the spring of 2011, Gaddafi promised to wipe out all the people in the second largest city in, in Libya, uh, Benghazi. 
uh, his troops were marching to do that. And we made an assessment that we did not want to sit by and watch genocidal slaughter. But we were not going to take uh, uh, action, and, and when I say we, I now mean NATO, without a UN Security Council resolution to authorize it. And shockingly, the Russians agreed. Let me be specific. President Medvedev agreed. I was there that night in the Kremlin when he told Vice President Biden, you guys are right about the Arab Spring. We've, we've been holding on to these dictators too long, and I'm going to abstain, which he knew was, the author, was going to allow the use of force by the Security Council, UN Security Council Resolution 1973, to authorize the U NATO's use of force in Libya. That, by the way, has never happened before or since by any Russian or Soviet leader since the creation of the United Nations. We thought it was really an amazing moment. Maybe the Russians really are going to be cooperative with us in many national security issues, but there was one guy back in Moscow that thought it was a huge mistake, Putin. In fact, two days later, he actually publicly said that. He said that his president had been, he didn't say this exactly, but drinking too much reset Kool-Aid, too close to the Americans. And he said he's now allowed for the American imperialists, he used a stronger word, what did he use? Um, crusaders, that's the word he used. He's allowing the American crusaders to come back to the Middle East. And I think that was the beginning of the end for Medvedev. That's when Putin decided, I've got to come back to deal with these Americans. And then, in the same year as all these events in the Arab Spring, I just want to remind you, this is the same year, December 2011, massive demonstrations happened in Russia. It was sparked by a falsified vote, parliamentary vote, it was kind of falsified, you know, we looked at it 5 6% for Russia, that's no big deal, that's kind of normal. Uh, we didn't think anything of it. Uh, but these folks thought a lot of it, and with their smartphones and Twitter and Vakan uh, Takte, they documented that falsification, and then they spun it around the country, and they finally said, you know, no, no representation, no taxation without representation. They actually use that phrase from time to time. You can't take our money if we don't get to actually legitimately elect our representatives in the parliament. And first 50 people came out, then 2,000, then 50,000, and then 200,000 people came out on the streets of Moscow. And we get 200,000 people together, they kind of spin themselves up. So they started with, we want a free and fair election, but by the end of these protests, it was Russia без Putina, Russia without Putin. In other words, they were calling for regime change. And remember, I told you, remember the last time you had this many people on the streets? It was 20 years earlier, the year there was regime change in the Soviet Union. 1991 is the year the Soviet Union collapsed. So Putin initially, by the way, he was, he was he was upset at these people. He is pissed off. I remember one speech he gave, and he was just like lecturing these, these the, the kind, they're called the, you know, the equivalent of the middle class. There's a different phrase in, in Russian for it. But he's like, I made you rich. How could you turn against me? By the way, oil and gas prices helped to make them rich. Uh, Putin himself didn't have much to do with it. Uh, but his second impulse was fear because of the slide I just showed you. And remember, this is all happening in 2011, the year that dictators are being overthrown throughout the Middle East because of these giant demonstrations against autocracy. So he needed a new argument. He needed a new argument to mobilize his 
supporters within Russia and marginalize the opposition that was leading those demonstrations. And that's where we came back in. It was our fault, America, Obama, and me. We, back to Putin's old theory, we were fomenting revolution against him. We were supporting the opposition. This is all completely false, I want to be clear. But this is the propaganda, this is the argument that he was making to his people as a way to mobilize domestic support against those demonstrators. And this is right when I arrived as the US ambassador, right? Correlation is not causation, we teach at Stanford. Uh, it just so happened that that's when I showed up in Moscow. Um, but as a result of that, I became the poster child for this kind of argument. In fact, it was even before my first day at work. We showed up, I, I, I arrived in Moscow with my wife and two sons. Uh, we, were, we had a long weekend before I started work on Tuesday, it was in January. Must have been Martin Luther King weekend or something. Anyway, uh, we moved into Spasa House. If you ever go to Russia, go see Spasa House. It's a fantastic place. For those of you paying your taxes, thank you for supporting us. Uh, the rent on that place was $800,000 a year. Uh, but it's this incredible place. It feel, feels like a, a museum. You know, Kissinger's there and Reagan's there, Brezhnev. All this history had happened. We're just kind of wandering around thinking, oh, isn't this going to be fun? Um, our entire house in Palo Alto can fit in the chandelier room of Spasso House, okay? So we're just kind of wandering around. And that, later that night, I turned on the TV just to kind of get my Russian going again. And there was a 20-minute hit piece on me by a guy I know, by the way, Misha Leontov his name, explaining to the Russian people that I was sent in order to foment revolution against Putin. That was my mission. And when I said I became the poster child for this argument, I mean literally the poster child. Um, uh, let's skip that one. This one, there we go. Um, where, whereby, this is, a, this is a calendar they put out uh, with me and all the other months of the year are various uh, Russian opposition leaders, in Russian and English, by the way. So you've heard a lot about disinformation. I lived through disinformation several years ago. Here's some more disinformation. Uh, on the left is a poster at a bus stop. Uh, it says the political circus is coming to town again. Um, and uh, down here are all the opposition leaders. And here I am, listed as the artistic director of their opposition demonstration that day. And on the right, I hope you can tell that's Photoshop. That's not actually me. Uh, my hands aren't that big. Uh, I'm campaigning for the opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, who at the time uh, was running uh, uh, as a candidate for mayor of Moscow. And then you don't need to understand Russian. But this is just a typical clip from television during the time that I was ambassador. Информированные источники из внешнеполитического ведомства сообщили что последним мероприятием посла, скорее всего, станет день 80-летия установления дипломатических отношений So he's explaining to his viewers that I'm being removed because I failed to bring about the revolution. It was a holiday when I was named ambassador because all those opposition people were waiting for me because I'm an expert in revolutions. I didn't have a plane like that, by the way. He didn't pay for that. Here are the opposition leaders coming to get there and instructions from me. And notice the fascists are also uh, subservient to me. That's what he's explaining here. All right, can you turn the sound off? You can still watch just for a minute. 
So you get the idea, right? Like that, that's Putin has turned against us, not because of something we did in bilateral relations, but because of what was happening internally. And then this one, just to go one step further, um, this was a video, I'm not gonna play this video because it's, it's kind of crude. Uh, this was a video put out three weeks after I showed up in Moscow. And just think about it for a moment. Like, what, what do you do with that? Like, you get on Twitter and you start arguing, you know, I'm not a pedophile. And then they say, prove it. Uh, it's, you know, it's a kind of a weird space to be in. But that was the flavor of U.S.-Russian relations in 2012. Unless you think it's just all about me, here's another uh, uh, clip. This is on their equivalent of 60 Minutes, which is basically explaining that you might think that Americans and ISIS have nothing in common, but in fact, Barack Hussein Obama and Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi have the same worldview, and they are the enemy of Russia. So there's no cooperation there. There's no win-win outcomes. We are back to a confrontational time, uh, not unlike the Cold War times, right? The final straw was then this. Um, notice a pattern, massive demonstrations against autocrats. This time, it's two years later, it's in Ukraine. Uh, this time, it's against President Yanukovych, a, loyal, uh, a loyalist to Vladimir Putin. Um, 100 people got killed in this demonstration. And we, with our European partners, tried to intervene to diffuse the tensions between President Yanukovych and these massive uh, demonstrators, the leaders of this demonstration. We actually thought we had a deal on February 21st, 2014. I remember it vividly. I was at the Sochi Olympics uh, as part of our US delegation there, and it felt like we had dodged a bullet and we we're gonna diffuse tensions. But 10 hours later, Yanukovych, the Ukrainian president, shows up in Russia for reasons that I, to this day, I do not understand why he fled so quickly. But Putin explained it. He said, aha, here it is again. The CIA, Pentagon, the Americans overthrowing a regime they don't like. Only this time, it's right on Russia's border. It's a close ally of Vladimir Putin. And that, I think, is when he decided to strike back. That's when he decided in a, uh, to go into Crimea and when that was easy, way too easy in my view, that's when he decided to go into the rest of eastern Ukraine. And then two years later, I think he decided to go on the offense against us in meddling in our elections. So let me end, good news, bad news. The good news, if you accept my explanation here, is that we're not destined because of culture or history or geography or the balance of power in the international system to be destined to have confrontational relations with Russia. My story is one about individuals, contingency, and concrete people making concrete decisions one way or the other. That's the good news. The bad news is that Putin is now locked, I think, firmly in his ways. He's an older man, people don't change their ways uh, later in their careers. He's been in power for 20 years. He was just reelected last year for a six-year term, and the guy works out three hours a day. He doesn't come to work till after lunch. So I don't think while he's in power, there's any uh, wiggle room, there's no capability of some improvement in US-Russian relations. I actually think we need a different strategy. I think we need to go back 
to what worked during the Cold War. Tragically, I want to emphasize, I don't, I, don't, I don't want this, but I don't think there's another choice, which is a big dose of deterrence and containment on Putin's belligerent ways when we can to cooperate on certain areas like arms control. Uh, Ronald Reagan and George Shultz, our colleague at Hoover, they did that even during the confrontational time with the Soviets, by the way, well before Gorbachev arrived. And a little less attention to the Russians. I would just like to, us to pay a little less attention to them in general. That, to me, I think is the strategy moving forward. Uh, most people in the Trump administration agree with this. And most, they've actually been implementing this policy for the last two years. There's just one guy that's not so, not so convinced it's the right uh, strategy, and he just happens to be the president of the United States. So that drama between him and his administration, uh, you know, whether they'll stay the course, which I think is the right strategy, or change, uh, that I think, especially now that the Mueller investigation is over, that's the drama to look for in U.S.-Russian relations moving forward. And for a deeper dive, you know what you got to do. Uh, thank you. Let me take some questions now. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.